Thank you for joining me for another episode of Politics and Pints here on Jackman Radio. Happy to have you here, and I'm excited today to be joined by a fellow political enthusiast, um, a political analyst, and an author. I met him back on the day of the New Hampshire primary, um, February 11th of this year, up in Manchester, New Hampshire, Mr. Rich Rubino. Rich, how are you today? I'm going, doing well. How are you doing today, Eric? I'm good, man. Thanks for uh, coming on and joining me today. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah, so we, uh, we met each other. We only met each other once in person. Um, but you can tell when you meet someone else who's very much engaged and into politics, and I, I have no problem calling myself a political nerd. Um, that <laughs> I uh, say politi-geek, but yeah. Politi-geek, yep, that, that works too. But uh, yeah, it's always great to meet someone who uh, pays attention and wants to be involved in the political discourse. And yeah, we met at the, um, was that the Hilton? And Hilton Elms. Hotel in, Man- in Manchester on Manchester, primary day. Yep. And primary day. And for you, those of you who don't know, that is like the Super Bowl for us. Uh, the New Hampshire primary. This was my sixth New Hampshire primary. Wow. Um, and I was, you know, obviously involved heavily with Tulsi Gabbard's campaign. Um, I helped her efforts in New Hampshire for a year, a little over a year, actually. Yeah, about a year. And um, we were, my brother and I were hanging out there at the hotel to meet Mark McKinnon from the circus. Yep. yep. And uh, you were up there and we kind of ran into each other, started chatting and uh, stayed in touch since then. And then said, Hey, why don't you come yep, on the Mark show? Actually, Mark actually endorsed my uh, last book. Yeah. Yeah. You, is yeah. that the one you sent to me? Yep. 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 Yeah. He's so one of the, he's one of the endorsers. Very nice guy. Yeah. He, Mark he was the only person that actually worked for Ann Richards, governor of Texas and George W. Bush. Right. Yeah. Mark is Mark is a really unique figure in American politics. I mean, he has been involved in so many different things in different areas and vessels of politics, whether it's media, advertising, um, entertainment, uh, you know, image consulting. Uh, yeah. You mean, you name it, man. And he does have that appeal of working with both parties and uh, obviously being the, one of the founders of No Labels, if I'm correct. Yep. He, uh, you know, he's not really not really a partisan hack. And I really like that about him. No, yeah, it's fascinating because I was asking because, you know, Ann Richards and George, just so people don't know, when Ann Richards was the governor of Texas, she ran for re-election in 1994. She was very personally popular, though some of her stances were not popular with Texans. So George W. Bush ran against her, went against her that year. It was really a full bore campaign, very nasty campaign. George W. Bush ended up winning, even though Richards had literally a 60% personal approval rating on election day. So George W. Bush became, became governor, but um, Mark McC- Kinnon was one of the few people that could actually work for both of them and because they, they really ran quite a, um, you know, it was, it was, shall we say, a, um, it was, shall we say, a spirited contest. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Texas politics is uh, rough and tumble, of course, going back to Lyndon Johnson and stealing that Senate race. And, yes, 1948. Um, and I don't know where you're on this, man, but, uh, you know, I, I never met a conspiracy I didn't love. I, I hear he may have been involved in his own sister's death. Is that true? Or do you know anything about that? I, I know nothing. <laughs> yeah that's the right answer <laughs> i do know though i do know about he, he had run for the senate one time in a special election and he barely lost it and then he landed up 1948 he landed up running again and there was box 13 that they found there were about 209 votes and every single one of them landed up going for um landed up going for landed up going for lyndon johnson in that senate race but the sister thing i'm not too sure about yeah the infamous box 13 um yeah you know who's all over that kind of stuff is uh, roger stone he wrote that oh book. yes he wrote that book of course uh johnson killed kennedy and one of his bag men a guy named mac wallace who was a henchman for uh lbj 
Roger Stone posits he was one of the shooters in Dealey Plaza, which I don't know if I really buy that. I mean, to some extent, I think Johnson had to at least have known the hit was coming down, but I don't know if he was, you know, the central figure in planning it. I don't know how deep into the Kennedy assassination you are, but I, um, I got the chance to visit Dealey Plaza for the first time back in October of last year. And it was, it was a surreal experience for me for sure. All I can say about that is it's interesting because um, I can just say from a political standpoint, first of all, if you listen to the Johnson tapes just about a month later, and he's talking about the assassination, and he was saying that he thinks in some respects it was retaliation for the fact that on uh, November 1st of that year, the Kennedy, the Kennedy administration had supported the assassination of President Diem in uh, the, pres the, the president of South, of South Vietnam. He thought in some respect there was some sort of a you know, kind of a um, kind of revenge for that. That's a lot of things that a lot of people don't don't really realize that that had actually happened that the Kennedy administration supported that. But it's always interesting to see in terms of policies what would have been different had Kennedy been had Kennedy had Kennedy essentially lived and then been reelected in 1964. Um, I mean, my contention is probably that the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act probably would not have passed because I don't think Kennedy had the political dexterity to get it through. You look at his actual accomplishments legislatively. The free trade, a free trade act in 1962 was probably the best thing that he was able to actually accomplish. He had a Democratic House, a Democratic Senate, but back then the parties were not ideologically homogenous the way they are today. So as a result, you had folks like James Eastland from Mississippi, John Stennis from Mississippi, who were Democrats, who were more conservative than any member of the Republican Party. And then on the Republican side, you had folks like George Aiken from Vermont, who were more liberal than most Republicans. So who were more liberal rather than a lot of the Democrats was really an interesting dynamic. But Kennedy didn't have much skill there. So then the other question is, so let's say Kennedy could not get Medicare through or could not get a lot of those certainly great society programs through. What about, for example, Vietnam? What would Kennedy have done? It's a fascinating phenomenon because Kennedy had always been a hawk, um, even though if you go back to 1958, he had said he had been somewhat of a non-interventionist in terms of Algeria, saying that essentially that it was time for, that was time for the French to leave Algeria or whatnot. But in terms of him actually, when he, came, when he actually came into office in terms of Vietnam, remember, he started off with about 600 advisors that he inherited from the Eisenhower administration. Mm -hmm. The day he died, there were 16,000 um, advisors. They were called advisors, but they advisors. were for all intents of purposes. They were, <laughs> they were American U.S. troops. Yeah. Um, Kennedy, Kennedy said, well, thing, though, Kennedy was actually a cold warrior who cared about foreign policy. Johnson was the exact opposite. Johnson wanted to be a domestic president. He wanted, all the, he wanted foreign policy to essentially be by the wayside. He was more interested in his domestic programs. He was interested in the war on poverty, be interested in great society which became fascinating because his undoing landed up becoming Vietnam. It became developed in Vietnam and eventually the great society receded and Vietnam became essentially his presidency. And by 1968, his job approval rating was at about 38%. And after, after winning the New Hampshire primary that year over Eugene McCarthy by literally six points, he landed up having to drop out of the race, but Vietnam really became his undoing. And if you listen to the tapes, by the way, he's talking to Richard Russell, his mentor, Senator from Georgia, and essentially, both of them were saying that there's no way to win here, and they had no way. They had, they really didn't know what they were doing, and they didn't know how to get out of it. They didn't stay, you know how to stay in it. But yeah, it's a fascinating phenomenon. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Pentagon Papers. Um, oh yeah. From the Rand Corporation that Daniel Ellsberg leaked out to the press, and then Mike Gravel read into the public record. Senator from Alaska. Yeah. Yeah, when he convened his uh, grounds and buildings committee that he chaired, he took that and used it to say we can't afford to build new buildings because all our money is tied up in Vietnam. And then that led to him reading, you know, thousands of pages into the public record. Yeah. I mean, the, the Kennedy stuff is always, I'm always really fascinated by it. And um, you hear people today, a lot of like 
MAGA people or just conservative people try to claim Kennedy as one of their own and then progressives try to claim him. So his legacy is, is kind of uh, bifurcated in that sense. It's fascinating. So here's what a lot of people don't realize. You hear this, I hear this because I hear this argument a lot. People say, well, you know, essentially the Democratic Party, you know, Kennedy would have been a, would have been a Republican today. Well, here's the thing. Both, both parties at that time had two bloodlines and the Democrats had very conservative members and very liberal members and a few moderate members. But there, the Republicans, the same thing. They had very liberal members from the Northeast who would be Democrats now, but also they had Western conservatives like Barry Goldwater from Arizona. But basically what there was was what was called the conservative coalition. And the conservative coalition was an amalgamation of Southern Democrats and Northern and, and rather and, uh, and Western conservatives. And the Democrats have had essentially the exact opposite there. But the, the Democrats and Republicans, the more liberal coalition was more or less Northeastern, De Northeastern, Repu Northeastern Republicans, some Northeastern Democrats and some, Re and, 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 Republic and, so and some Republicans from the middle of the country. But what was in what's interesting is they hear this all the time about the Civil Rights Act. People will say, well, you go back in time, you know, Lyndon Johnson got the Civil Rights Act with Republicans who supported him. Well, that's true. But if you look at the Democrats who actually voted against it, with the sole exception of Robert Byrd from West Virginia, every single one of them in the United States Senate was a Southern Democrat that voted against it. So it was really, the parties were so different at the time. Um, the other thing I find fascinating, if you go back to Kennedy, if you listen to him, one of his major achievements was a tax cut. There was a tax cut act that was very similar to what Ronald Reagan proposed, the Kemp Roth, the Kemp Roth tax cut in 1981. But for the Kennedy, it was, a, it was different, essentially. And by the way, it did raise taxes on the rich, and it was very similar. I remember, you know, Rush Limbaugh would try to say, well, Kennedy was doing the same thing what Reagan did. In the case of Kennedy, it was more, more or less viewed as a Keynesian um, way to stimulate the economy. In other words, giving the consumer more money. And so Kennedy dies, and actually Lyndon Johnson gets the tax cut. Representatives with some of the most liberal members of both houses supporting him, and some of the opposition. Barry Goldwater was one of them, the conservative senator from Arizona, because there was a ring in the Republican Party at the time that was into deficit reduction, fiscal austerity. They didn't want to cut taxes. And Dwight Eisenhower, literally the Republican president, came out of, came out of retirement and said that this is going to bankrupt the country if you support this tax cut. I think that Ronald Reagan kind of changed that dynamic a little bit. And the, you know, the Republican Party was seen less as the party of deficit reduction and more or less the party of tax cuts. But it's always interesting yeah. because, you know, yeah, I'll say this too. In terms of the two major parties, if you go back in time, the Democratic Party was essentially founded on free trade. They were founded on less government. They were founded on the. They were founded on supporting the gold standard. The Republican Party was founded. Of course, they were not abolitionists when it comes to slavery. There were radical Republicans that were, but amongst, but their their main policy amongst the, was, of course, that they're not should not be. They also wanted efficient government services. They were economic nationalists. They wanted higher tariffs. You know, go back to what Benjamin Harrison was running on in 1888. And Benjamin Harrison's platform is very, very similar to anything any Democrat would run on in the 20th century. It's just fascinating. Yeah, it is. So obviously with quarantine and <laughs> our life kind of being put on hold the last three months, we've probably all had plenty of time to binge watch shows and documentaries and programs. And, um, one really cool documentary I just watched was uh, by Werner Herzog, and it was called Meeting Gorbachev. Oh, yeah. I, don't know, I don't know if you've seen that. And, um, you know, I, I'm only starting to kind of learn about Gorbachev, and I'm really fascinated by him. I mean, he's still alive. He's like 90 years old. Yeah, he's yep. – And the, um, the Reykjavik summit was uh, October 11th and 12th in 1986, and I was born yep. October 10th, 1986. So 
I'm really no correlation though. <laughs> no correlation. I'm really uh, fascinated by Gorbachev and the fact that he really put it all on the line there in Reykjavik and told told Reagan, "Hey man, well we'll we'll lay down all of our nuclear weapons if the United States does the same thing," which is uh, fascinating and intriguing and. Uh, nowadays, seemingly something that would never happen. So, what, what, what's your take on Gorbachev and the, the Reykjavik summit he yeah. did with Reagan? Yeah, well, there was, of course, there was also Perestroika, and there was Glasnost, and it was essentially policy of somewhat um, liberalizing the economy. But mm-hmm. here's what's absolutely fascinating. So, Reagan gets the strategic. So, Reagan gets a treaty with Gorbachev, and at the time, you have Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich, the kind of firebrand congressman, congressman, congressman from New Georgia, future Speaker of the House. He came out and he actually literally compared Reagan meeting with Gorbachev to the, to the Reagan meeting with Gorbachev to the Munich summit between then 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 British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain and Adolf Hitler. Um, mm-hmm. That was what he was essentially comparing him. And it's fascinating because you know the right likes to look like how from their perspective was ideologically was ideologically purified. He was someone who you know who is like Ted Cruz used to say who talked in pastels, not in grays. But Ronald Reagan at the time, he got that treaty through with Democratic support. It was the conservative wing of the Republican Party that was literally running ads in places like New Hampshire, 1986, 1987, saying that essentially this is, this is awful for the country. It's treason. Um, but it was Ronald Reagan, again, who got that, who got that through and it's, uh, who, who actually who was able to get that through. And it's part of his, you know, certainly one of the two or three things he's most remembered for. But at the time, it was viewed as appeasement from the, the Richard Vagary, a lot of the kind of the conservative intelligentsia. They were all saying this is actually, this is essentially treason. You know, what happened to Ronald Reagan? The same thing, by the way, with Iran-Contra. Look up what Newt Gingrich was saying about Iran-Contra in about 1986. He basically said that Ronald Reagan has lost the trust of the country. And then, you know, now you look at Newt Gingrich in 2020. Now Newt Gingrich is kind of an apostle and he has everything about, everything about, everything about Ronald Reagan. He just kind of genuflects too, but... Right. Know, people don't look. People don't look necessarily look in history the same with John F. Kennedy. I mean, imagine the Democrat today proposing what John F. Kennedy proposed, which was cross the board tax cuts, including tax cuts for the wealthy Americans. Um, or imagine some. Imagine a Democrat supporting what was really an interventionist Cold War policy of John F. Kennedy at the time. I mean, John F. Kennedy was really an interventionist. Um, essentially, his bloodline of the Democratic Party, I think, probably gr- gradually left, which was essentially more government on the domestic side, on the foreign side. Essentially, you build up the military. Um, when he ran for president in 1960, one of his biggest complaints was the Republican president, Dwight Eisenhower, and his vice president, Richard Nixon, had not done nearly enough to increase the defense budget, for example. Mm. And he becomes president. And then you had Scoop Jackson, who ran for president in 1972, 1976, senator from, senator from Washington State. They called him a senator from Boeing, someone who had literally been in there since the 1940s, who really kind of was the um, tribune or the arbiter of that ideology. Again, 76, lost again. And then eventually a lot of those so-called neoconservatives, some from the Kennedy wing, went to Scoop Jackson. And then a lot of them landed up supporting Ronald Reagan in 1980 because Reagan essentially invited them in saying essentially, you know, we're going to have, when it comes to, when it comes to the Cold War, we're not going to have the kind of um, detente, which was really, which, of, which was Richard Nixon's policy and Gerald Ford's policy, which was essentially we try to get along with the Soviets. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Carter comes in 1977. And Jimmy Carter's policy is essentially instead of worrying about east-west relations, we should worry about north-south relations in terms of having a policy toward Latin, toward Latin America, you know, um, starring human rights. But then in 1980, when Russia invaded Afghanistan, Jimmy Carter said essentially, I've learned everything about Russia that I need to know. So in 1980, Jimmy Carter gets a huge elephantine um, increase in the defense budget. 
And then, you know, a lot of people say that Ronald Reagan was the guy who really increased defense, but it was actually began with Ronald Reagan and with Jimmy Carter in 1980 because mm -hmm. he stopped that detente and it really moved further right. And then Ronald Reagan moved further and further to the right when it came to the Soviets, at least until Gorbachev actually to, actually was in power. Originally, he had there were, there were about you know there were like seventy three other fresh leaders, but they kept dying every other day. So <laughs> yeah, there was a stretch there where three of them died. Off and yeah, yeah, three of them died in like eighteen months or something. And they, they used to they, say, "I want to meet with them," but they all keep dying on me. Oh, well, they were all freaking fossils. And <laughs> Gorbachev was like a young man. Um, yeah, and and with Carter, I mean, the big Dubrzinski was his national security. Yep. Um, advisor and Brzezinski essentially created the Mujahideen and funded them and with Charlie yep. Wilson and Operation, yep. Operation Cyclone that Senator Gordon Humphrey was a part of who was a New Hampshire senator yep. um, when I sat down with Gordon Humphrey because he was a big John Kasich uh, surrogate. I had him over to my house for an interview on my podcast and he just wanted to talk about Kasich. And I'm like, all right, so we'll talk about Kasich, but I want to hear about Operation Cyclone. And he looked at me, he's like, uh, yeah, maybe, man. I don't know about that. <laughs> he's like kind of wondering how the, how the hell I knew about that. About or About Brzezinski you know. too. What's that? Oh, absolutely. Fascinating about Brzezinski too is, so you had Operation Eagle Claw, you had the Iran hostage crisis, essentially um, when about when when Americans were 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 captured in Iran, and then Jimmy Carter approved a mission called Operation Eagle Claw, where the military was going to come in and they were going to try to save the hostages. But basically, what happened there was an accident. Yeah, it service, got members, service members died. But you yeah. know what's interesting is so Brzezinski, he was the Cold War hawk of that administration. Right. But on the other side, you had Cyrus Vance. Mm -hmm. Cyrus Vance was not Jimmy Carter's first choice to be Secretary of State. His first choice was George Ball. George Ball was basically the dissenter in the Kennedy and Johnson administration on the Vietnam War. Unlike folks like John Bolton, you know, he stayed in the administration the entire time as an assistant secretary of state and argued, the, argued as a dissident saying why we should not stay in Vietnam, but he was a loyal soldier, at least publicly, kind of almost like Colin Powell in some respects. And that's obviously a moral argument you can say, well, should he have stayed, should he have gone, or would it have been right. better just to have a dissent voice? So anyway, that was his first choice. Cyrus Vance became his second choice. So Cyrus Vance goes on a vacation in Florida. And at the time, Brzezinski, um, Gomez de Carter has, has this plan that we're going to go in and Operation Eagle Claw. It gets approved. But Warren Christopher, who's the assistant secretary of state, is in the play, is in there and basically supplanting um, Cyrus Vance because Cyrus Vance is off in Florida for a vacation. Cyrus Vance then comes back on the Monday and Warren Christopher tells him, well, we got this plan. We're going to send the military in and we're going to actually do this. And then Cyrus Vance then essentially right there, he resigns in protest and he calls Brzezinski um, you know, he calls Brzezinski essentially evil, but mm. it was absolutely, it was that, no, it was absolutely fascinating. And of course, Brzezinski's known as the person who really started, as you say, he was really started funding. He used to say that they're on God's side about yeah. the, Mujahideen, the Arab Afghan Mujahideen, who eventually became, yeah, who eventually became, um, <laughs> became Al-Qaeda. Oh, well, Al-Qaeda, right. And, and came back and bit us hard in the ass on 9-11 um, in, in a big way. Um, yeah, well, that's he, it. It's a, also, I was just going to yeah, it's it's fascinating how, you know, America just, you know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. And, you know, they had their the, the friggin' freedom. Mujahideen were in the White House with Ronald Reagan. He called them the freedom fighters. And, uh, you know, Charlie Wilson was big on getting them money and arms and support. And they had that whole movie, Charlie Wilson's War, with Tom Hanks playing him. And, uh, yeah, a lot of people just don't really realize that that history. Well, here's another thing that's fascinating about the Mujahideen. You know, when um, when George W. Bush, a couple of days, about a week, I think it was I think it was September 20th, he spoke before a joint session of the United States Congress, and he said, you know, why do they hate us? He said, because they hate us because what they see right here in our chamber, meaning that they hate us because we're free, essentially. 
But if you go back, so the question is, why was this, what turned Osama bin Laden against the United States? And part of it was, so, the, so, so essentially, essentially Osama bin Laden was against the idea of having, of having non-Muslim troops on Saudi soil, the, the, basically the, um, the land of Mecca and Medina, that was supposed to be that Prophet Muhammad on his deathbed was supposed to say there should not be secular forces there. So when Iraq invaded Kuwait, remember at the time, Iraq was considered, it was, they were basically a secular despotic regime. I mean, they were a brutal, one of those truculent regimes in history, but they were, yeah. they were secular. Right. And Osama bin Laden had a certain antipathy toward him. So when Iraq invaded Kuwait, then the thought was they're going to then go into Saudi Arabia, um, Osama bin Laden offered 100,000 Arab Afghan Mujahideen troops to protect Saudi, to protect the Saudi royal family, to protect Saudi Arabia from Iraq. Mm-hmm. And he, so Osama bin Laden had that offer, but George H.W. Bush sent Colin Powell, Dick Cheney, and Brett Scowcroft over there to say, you know what, instead of taking his offer, why don't you allow U.S. troops to go in there instead? Some yeah. of those U.S. troops were, of course, females, which was really something that was considered sacrilege, certainly to the Wahhabis in Saudi, to the Wahhabis in uh, Saudi Arabia, right? And certainly to, uh, to Osama bin Laden. So that's what really irritated Osama bin Laden. But then he used three other issues. And if you ever read Osama bin Laden's fatwa, his declaration of war in the United States, the first issue was, and a lot of people don't realize the severity, but there were UN sanctions on Iraq in the 1990s that were supported first by the George H.W. Bush administration, then by the Bill Clinton administration. And there was actually an interview with Madeleine Albright in 1996, where she's being interviewed by uh, Leslie Stahl. And Leslie Stahl says, essentially, you know, there have been so far 500,000 children, and Stahl's word said, who have died, you know, my, based on the sanctions, my question is, is the price worth it? Lawbright looks at her and she says, you know, it's an interesting question, but yes, I think the price is worth it. So that's played all over the Middle East. That galvanizes people. It galvanizes Sunnis. It galvanizes Salafis. It galvanizes Shiites to be against the United States, to basically view them as somebody who's kind of interfering, who's kind of an interloper, um, who's being, who's being intransigent, who's moving, who's essentially, who's, um, who's kind of intervening in our affairs. We use this sanctions in Iraq is another one. And um, it's another major policy against the United States. And the third, he, certainly the views, his views about the Israeli-Palestinian issue, that brought, another, that brought in other groups of Muslims. His views just basically that the United States supported autocratic regimes in places like Jordan. So what he did, Osama bin Laden was able to bring, to unify the Shias and the, the, Shias and the Sunnis together in, 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 in respect and kind of against the common cause being the Western powers, basically saying the United States, you can either go after the far enemy or the near enemy. The near enemy is essentially what's going on in the Middle East. The far enemy is what's going on in the West. And he's saying basically the United States, in a sense, is bankrolling or is funding or is really supporting the policies of the, who is really supporting the policies of the autocrats in the Middle East. And of course, Osama bin Laden was, I mean, what he was really a theocrat. He wanted, you know, regimes like the Taliban. Yeah. What's fascinating, that's what really, that's what really galvanized Osama bin Laden. It wasn't necessarily that he was going after the United States for being the United States. United States, it was that he, in many respects, he was saying, you know, why, why, why are there United States, why are there secular troops in Saudi Arabia? And that's what really, it all kind yeah. of comes down to when you really kind of read what's going on there. Yeah. I mean, you know, bin Laden was our guy till he wasn't our guy. And it's just interesting. We don't end up invading Saudi Arabia when majority of the hijackers were Saudi and bin Laden Saudi. And then obviously with the 28 pages that came out from the original investigation yeah. in nine eleven. Yeah. The Graham report exactly um, pointing to official Saudi involvement in both material and financial support to some of the hijackers. And I actually know some of the 9-11 families, a friend of mine named Tim Froelich survived the World Trade Center on 9-11. And they've been working tirelessly to 
get further um, disclosure on Saudi Arabia's role in 9-11 and have them held accountable for it, which I know is kind of a long shot. And I mean, held MBS butchered a guy in a, the embassy there in Turkey, and it's pretty blatant what happened mm -hmm. there. And Trump just said, oh, you know, that's okay. You know, it's a... Uh, the guy was a journalist. He was a bad guy. He had it coming, you know, basically. <laughs> so we're, uh, well, that, I mean, that whole thing goes back, yep. goes back all the way to FDR, essentially, you know, having this relationship, yeah, yeah. relationship us, with Saudi Arabia. Give us yeah. the oil and we'll back you and you can do no wrong. And now that's of course, manifesting itself in Yemen with the bombing campaign that we've mm -hmm. now supported yep. over there. We can't seem to do anything about it or really even acknowledge the genocide that's happening there. So it's uh that's a that's a powder keg part of the world and a really uh really tough thing but obviously with oil sinking with during this pandemic um it's it's it hasn't been easy for Saudi Arabia to do much flexing in the last few months no absolutely it's abs it's and again another fascinating phenomenon the relationship between the United States and certainly the Saudi certainly the Saudi royal family but it was you know that relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia which really, I think, I'm not even necessarily talking about the actual hijackings. I was talking from a policy perspective. That is really what effectuated the angst amongst Osama bin Laden. And another kind of interesting tidbit. So and after 9-11, so, so basically the Taliban was harboring um, Osama bin Laden. And George W. Bush says essentially either you, either you give him up or him and his coefficients or essentially we're going to go in and attack. But there was actually some dispute within the Taliban. And it was really Muhammad, Mullah, Mullah Muhammad Omar who was the leader of the Taliban, he was the one who said, we, he's our guest, we keep him in this country. But there were some people in the Taliban who were saying, you know, why are we going to get invaded? Why not just give this guy up? And if that were the case, then there probably never would have been a war in Afghanistan. And the mm -hmm. Taliban would, of course, you know, as truculent as they are, the Taliban would still have been in power. But it was that one, it was that one person's decision that was really, that really triggered this entire event. Yeah, yeah, it's been... Uh... It's been unbelievable. 20-year global war on terror, seemingly with no end in sight. So I know, you know, you're an author and an analyst, um, but ha have you worked on any political campaigns lately or, or have you always never been on the campaign uh, not side? Not recently. Now I'm trying to just, yeah, I'm trying to just kind of analyze and kind of dissect what's going on from as uh, uncolored or impartial of a perspective as a human being possibly can. I mean, every, <laughs> obviously everybody has some sort of a bias, you know, just sure. the fact that you, just the fact that you decide what's what part of a story you're going to emphasize shows mm -hmm. you have a bias. But it's almost like it's almost like in the Constitution, you know, you don't. It's almost like in the Constitution Declaration of Independence, you know, you strive for a more perfect union, but you never actually get there. Oh, of course. So, what are uh, any any big campaigns I'd know? Are they Massachusetts politicians or presidential? Oh, campaigns? I haven't worked in campaigns recently. No. No. Well, historically, which which ones uh, did you? Well, I worked on a, a couple of them. I worked on Christy Myhouse, who ran for oh, governor yeah. in Massachusetts. Sure. I was a policy advisor in 2006. Yep. He was kind of a, he was running as an independent at the time. Fascinating campaign. It was actually, he was actually running as an independent. And he was actually, she had about 25% at one point, but there's always the wasted vote syndrome. And what happened yeah. was um, Kerry Healy, who was the Republican candidate, made the case, who she was lieutenant governor, that a vote for Christy Myhouse was a vote for Deval Patrick. And 99% right. of the time when you make that argument and you're running as an independent, it's extremely hard to actually, it's extremely hard to argue against that. Um, I mean, you make, what you make the case, you say, no, it's a vote for Christy Myhouse, but then, you know, immediately the two parties, you know, that's one thing that, one thing you have a bipartisan agreement on is that two parties want any sort of dissident voices. They want them to be kind of on the way to dislodge yep. any sort of a, you know, there's always exceptions to that. Jesse Ventura, for example, in Hell 1998, yeah. he was at about 10%. And a body. They tried to make, 
you tried to make that's right. Um, they tried to make the case at the time you had Norm Coleman. So Norm Coleman was the Republican candidate, former Democrat, by the way, who ran actually ran Bill Clinton's campaign, I think, in Minnesota in 96, but really changed and became Republican. He was mayor of St. Paul. And he was saying that a vote for Jesse Ventura is a vote for Skip Humphrey. Skip Humphrey, the son of Hubert Humphrey, who was the former vice president, famed vice president, very popular in Minnesota, who was a Democratic nominee. But Jesse Ventura, in a couple of debates, really kind of outshone, outshined, I guess, some of, the, some of his opponents. And people ended up taking a chance on him. And Jesse Ventura, you know, later he said, we shocked the world. And he actually won the, he actually won the Minnesota governorship. You know, at the time, you know, remember, when you're up for three-man race and the third candidate is a serious candidate, all you need is about 34% of the vote. Mm -hmm. You don't need to get to that 50%. Right. That's why Mo Weicker, for example, was able to win in Connecticut. That's why in a state like Maine, you know, our Republican, Paul, Republican Governor Paul LePage was able to get elected because it was a guy named Elliot Cutler, who was running as an independent, who would get about 18 or 19%. So all he would have to get would be 35%, right. even though he's far more conservative than mm -hmm. the more um, middling state of Maine, certainly. But that was a really fascinating one. Then I worked on another group of the National Popular Vote which was trying to change the way delegates are allocated in the electoral college. Basically, if you go back to the founding of the country, the, the, the general argument a lot of people believe is that the electoral college was founded as a way to protect, um, as a way to protect small states. But if you look at it, all the constitution says is each state shall appoint in such a manner of the legislature there may direct a number of electors. Meaning essentially what happened at the constitutional convention back in 1787 is that Federalists, Anti-Federalists could not agree on how they would on how to elect presidents. Some thought the legislature should do it. Some members thought the Congress should do it. Some thought essentially that um, some thought that it should be a direct popular vote. So what they did is they gave the states their they gave the states plenary authority to award their electoral votes in any way possible. The first election, only about three states actually did it the way we currently do it, which is whoever gets the most votes in a state garners every single vote in that state. But there were other ways to do it as well. Eventually, the Democratic Republican Party. Um, decided that the best, when they were in power in Massachusetts and they had power in the presidency, decided the way to maximize their political potential at the national level is to, is to, award, their, is to award whoever wins the, whoever wins the state all their popular votes. So obviously that benefited the party. But it's interesting because at least you have a phenomenon now. If you look at the small states, other than New Hampshire, and to a certain degree, Maine, Maine at least has one congressional district, the first congressional, the one congressional district that goes all the way from essentially Caribou down to about Lewiston and down to the lowest. It's actually the first, the, the, it's actually the, uh, in terms of land, the in terms of land, it has the most, it has, it's, it, it's the biggest congressional district in terms of land anywhere east of the Mississippi. So that district sometimes will go Republican. Last time it went Republican, whereas the rest of the state went Democrat. So other than New Hampshire, look at some of the small states, North Dakota, South Dakota have not gone for a, have not been competitive. They have not gone for a, Demo for a Democrat since 1964 when LBJ had his landslide over Goldwater. Um, look at, you know, certainly Hawaii is not a swing state. Um, you know, Kansas is not a swing state. Utah is not a swing state. Idaho and Utah have not gone for Democrats since 1964. Wyoming has not gone for 1964. So the only real small state you have that's competitive is New Hampshire. So then you look at the big states, then you have states, essentially you have California, you look at the, the, two, the three of uh, the four biggest states. Okay, so Florida is a showdown state. Texas is becoming more and more a showdown state. Mm -hmm. Interesting, some states that used to be swing states are not anymore, whereas some states become more or less swing states. Um, you know, Colorado, for example, from 1952, when Eisenhower won, all the way through 2004, when George W. Bush won, went for the Republican candidate every single year, except 1964 in the LBJ blowout against Goldwater, and 1992 when Bill Clinton won against George H.W. Bush with Ross Perot helping with that. Now Colorado has become to the point where it's almost so democratic. You know, Obama won it, for, Obama won it twice, 
Hillary won it the last time around, that it's almost no longer a swing state. But at any rate, right now you have a phenomenon where in New York and California, the candidates go in there, essentially they, um, they parachute in, they have fundraisers, and they spend that money in places like Ohio, in places like um, North Carolina, and other swing states. So it's a really, it's an election where I think about two thirds of the country, in some cases, you know, three fourths of the country, unless it's a blowout election, are essentially on kind of the electoral sidelines. This is where I kind of, this is kind of the case that we would make um, at the time, that the small states and the big states are essentially discarded. The other phenomenon is that in places like California, you know, California, it may be a maybe a Democratic state, but it's not monolithically Democrat. There are certainly parts around Bakersfield, Kevin McCarthy, the House Minorities Leaders District, that are very that have very that are very rural, that can be very Republican. That if it, if the Electoral College, if the, if the National Popular Vote were instituted, and each state were allowed, and each state were awarding their electoral votes to whoever wins the state nationally, then a candidate would have an impetus to go to places like Bakersfield and say, you know, this is what this is why you should support our candidate. Now go to a place like Alaska, North Dakota. Will the candidate visit Alaska, North Dakota? Probably not, but there would at least probably be a campaign office and there would at least be some effort to say, to, to try to go to North Dakota, to try to go to South Dakota and actually focus on the issues that affect North Dakota and South Dakota versus focusing on issues like, you know, obviously steel tariffs is gonna be an elephantine issue because, or because that, you know, George W. Bush in 2003 supported steel tariffs, even though he said he was an unreconstructed free trader, in part because he had to do it because Ohio and Pennsylvania, and at the time, West Virginia, were super showdown states. So that's mm -hmm. kind of the argument we were making at the time. Yeah, well, that's, a, that's a cool thing to be part of. Yeah, so we got, uh, you know, I'll tell you, the last month, the last three weeks uh, with the pandemic and the George Floyd killing and the, the mass protesting and everything that's going on is really the first time I've felt that Trump is very vulnerable and won't... Uh, doesn't 100% have his reelection in the bag. So people are asking me where I put that at. And I just, I go back and forth day to day. And it's a big, a big part of it's going to have to do with who Biden picks as his running mate. So, um, you know, what do you think Trump's chances are of reelection? And who do you like for Biden's running mate? Yeah, first of all, in terms of reelection, got to remember a few things. First of all, in 1976, in the summer of 1976, Jimmy Carter was ahead of Gerald Ford by 30 Four votes percent in the popular vote. Jimmy Carter ended up winning by one percentage point. In 1988, Michael Dukakis, after a successful Democratic National Convention in Atlanta that year in August of 1988, August of 1988, was ahead of Bush by 17 points, ended up losing by 10 points, and only ended up winning 10 states, and got to the point where he almost lost Massachusetts. So things do change in American politics, yeah. and certainly Donald Trump has a rabbit in his hat they could potentially pull it in October. So I would say to any Biden supporters, you know, do not get too, too super silious here and say, oh, he's got it in the bag. You know, Trump is not somebody that likes to lose. And I'm sure that if there's something that, there's some sort of potential October surprise, something he's waiting for, or, you know, you don't even know what could happen between now and October. So I know. another phenomenon, Hubert Humphrey in 1968, you know, he was, he, he was down by about 15, 20 points. But when he gave a speech that year on September 30th, he went to Salt Lake City, Utah, and he distanced himself from the Johnson administration, saying that he would support a unilateral bombing halt in North Vietnam as an acceptable risk for peace. So as a result, folks like some Eugene McCarthy supporters were really hostile to him in the, in the primaries, hostile to him at the um, Democratic National Convention, started to support him. Eventually, Eugene McCarthy came around, although his official quote at the time was, he said, um, I support Hubert Humphrey and asked my supporters suffer with me. Not the most, <laughs> not the most supportive. Yeah. <laughs> and eventually Hubert Humphrey ended up losing that election by about one point. His supporters think that if their election were another week away, that he probably would have won that election. So don't get too cocky on this. Now, in terms of Joe Biden's running mate, I think the best candidate is Hilda Solis. 
She's the former, um, the first Latino, okay, so she, let's back up a little bit. She is a state senator in California where she was the first female to win the Profiles and Courage Award from the Kennedy Center for her role in, for her role in environmental protection and getting, it through, getting environmental protection through with the Republican governor, Pete Wilson, at the time. She was elected in 2000 to the United States House of Representatives, beating Mel Martinez, who was an incumbent member of the, of the House of Representatives, in part by running to her left. And what issues did she run on? Part of it was she was an, she was an economic nationalist who opposed NAFTA, who opposed the GATT, who opposed a lot of the trade treaties that, the, that Joe Biden had supported, certainly bringing China into the WTO. Um, so that's something that can inoculate her from some of the support on the left. She gets into Congress. She becomes one of the most vociferous opponents of the Iraq war. She's part of the Out of Iraq Caucus. She authors the Green Jobs Act uh, with John Tierney in, from Massachusetts. So eventually what happens in 2008 is Barack Obama sees what she had done and nominates her as the first Latina. She, so she's the first Latina cabinet secretary in American history. And she serves four years and eventually she leaves office and becomes a member of the uh, Los Angeles County Board, Board of uh, County Supervisors which is a lot bigger than, it actually has about two million constituents, a lot bigger than people might think of it as. Wow. But she's very charismatic. You don't, I don't know why you're not hearing her very much, but she would be very support, very, she would be very big in the Latina community. That's why I think would be this, would be the strongest, most formidable candidate. She's actually supported Joe Biden during the primary. She's somebody who could inoculate a lot of the support on the left. She could bring into a lot of Sanders supporters. While concomitantly, she could bring in a lot of the supporters of, um, she could bring in a lot of the people in the Latina community. Look at places like Texas and California in the primary. Who was Joe Biden's weakest constituency? The Latino and Latina community. So I don't know why, and I don't know why in the name of Chandling Cox, the former governor of Massachusetts, look that up. Um, I don't know why she's, her, name is not, her name is not mentioned more. I think she's the most strongest candidate. Yeah, I mean, he definitely cornered himself saying he has to pick a woman and a, you know, a woman of color. You don't renege on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can't do that, you know, because uh, – a great flex would be to pick Bernie and bring him into the fold. I, I wonder Oxygenarians if... of the world unite. <laughs> I know. I mean, obviously, I want, I want it to be Tulsi Gabbard because she's a friend of mine, and I just think she would be a great fit. Um, you know, because our events here in New Hampshire, we saw a lot of MAGA people come to our events, a lot of libertarians, uh, real progressives. So, I, you know, I feel there's, there's a swath of people who really like her kind of leadership and her style. She's only 39, but of course, she's always been at war since she resigned her co-chairmanship of the DNC. Yes, yes. I'm against Hillary, so they would never really sign off on that. But I do know her and Biden are, are good friends. She's known Biden for a while, and when he was vice president, um, she would go over, you know, to parties and picnics that he'd have. So all the they, rage, all the uh, all the keg parties over at the uh, over yeah. observatory circle. Yeah, the, the keggers over there at the vice president's uh, residency, but. Uh, yeah, they're friendly, and and you know, if you notice, I noticed this too during the primary. She, uh, you know, she didn't really attack Biden for being the cheerleader for the Iraq War that he was, and she crippled Kamala Harris's campaign after Kamala attacked Biden with the segregation stuff. I was at that debate out in uh, Detroit yeah. in July of last year. It was just an amazing moment when she just totally torched Kamala Harris about her <laughs> record as a prosecutor and. Locking people yeah, up for smoking it's, 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 weed. I find even after that event. Locking people up for smoking weed. And then yep. when she's asked about it, she laughed about well. it. Yeah, it was, it was awesome. It was one of, the, one of the most epic burns, no pun intended, of the whole 2020 primary. <laughs> so, like, to me, Tulsi was, was in a position where if it was Bernie was the nominee, he could have possibly picked her. She could be appealing to Biden. And then also, there's part of me who thinks she could still be a cabinet position in the next Trump administration because she was interviewed 
she was vetted right. by by right. the Trump team uh, via Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon's a really big fan of Tulsi, and you know likes her um, likes her foreign policy views. You know likes her views on some some on economics. So she does have that that appeal to all those different um, entities. But yeah, I don't know. It's it, the the woman you discussed is definitely interesting. I know Val Demings is being mentioned there down in Florida. Um, Kamala is still being Former talked about. Orlando police chief, yeah. yeah. I know, right? So you got Kamala and you got Dem- uh, Demings, both like cops essentially, uh, might not be good with optics right now. So have interesting in the case of Val Demings is the fact that she was, so she was the first African-American and also the, she, I mean, rather she was the first female police chief of the Orlando police force. But she's also, and she's super 27 years in the force, but she's also African-American. So potentially could she be kind of that, person who could kind of heal that chasm between the African-American community and the police force. That's why, you know, politics, so much of it is about timing. Mm-hmm. And in many respects, you know, somebody like her, she literally just got elected. She ran in 2012, lost against Daniel Webster. Um, not, the, not the Daniel Webster from New Hampshire, but the one who was a, con- who was a backbencher congressman from Florida. Then in 2016, when the district became more, um, became more amendable to, to a Democrat, she won. She, she literally was just elected to the United States House of Representatives in 2016. Then she got a reelect in 2018. Usually when you make a pick like that, it's because you're down by 25 points. Um, you don't yeah. want to do a Hail Mary. I think in Walter Mondale in 1984, pick Geraldine Ferraro. <laughs> Ferraro had been elected in 78. By 1984, very few people outside of kind of the political intelligentsia and high command had heard of who she was. Yeah. But you know what? He had other people in the establishment. Lloyd Benson on the show, was on the shortlist center from Texas who had been, been in there since 1970. Before that, had been in the House since 1948. So why did he choose her? Because you know what, when you're that far down, you have to choose somebody that's going to either galvanize, that's going to try to galvanize a, a constituency, potentially females. Um, but you know what, you're so far down, you have to do that. John, Sarah Palin, you know, for all of her foibles, the fact of the matter is John McCain was, had a president of the United States, George W. Bush, with a job approval rating of under 30%. So the only way essentially that you're going to really galvanize people is to bring somebody that no one's ever heard of and just hope that kind of lightning strikes. So he picks the governor of Alaska who's got a 91% job approval rating who had won the Alaska governorship by beating Frank Murkowski, an incumbent Republican, saying who was essentially part of who essentially saying that he was part of the corrupt culture in Alaska, who had worked with both parties, at least in Alaska she had. She was seen as kind of a um, from a broad brush as a bipartisan leader. She later, of course, moved further to the right and left and became less and less of that. But she was, I mean, that's what you essentially do. In Val Deming's case, she's very charismatic. She's a very good speaker, by the way, if you listen to her. But she's potentially risky because she's never been elected outside of one of 435 congressional yeah, districts. And exactly. she's not like she's been in the leadership. You know, it's one thing right. if you're a House member and you're the minority leader or something to that effect. But she's really kind of been, you know, a, she's been very effective in part because she was a House manager. And she really, um, you know, was really able to ruffle kind of a lot of feathers among Republicans. So I think that it's almost like when uh, Barry Goldwater chose chose Walter E. Miller, who no one ever heard of, congressman from New York, later chairman of the Republican Party. He said, why would he do it? He said, because he, he makes LBJ nuts. So that would be very similar. He's somebody who could really make get under Donald Trump's skin because he's, mm. she's gone after him. She could yeah. be a Spear Wagner type, really be an attack dog. I'll say this, though, about Telsey Gabbard, which is interesting. And there's so many similitudes between her and Ron Paul. I remember Ron Paul's 2008 presidential candidacy. It was fascinating, the people who supported him. On the one hand, you had homeschooling advocates. You had members of the Christian right. But you also had people on the far left. You had members of the Wiccan community, for example, who supported him because he, you, had liter- you, had, you, had, you had Satanists. You had part of the Church of Satan who would support him. You would, they literally, his campaign was the only one that actually handed out flyers 
at OzFest because part of his anti-government, thing in the anti-government message on the one hand, and the, for conservatives, they're going to support him because he was 100% against, he was 100% against abortion. But on the other side, on the left wing, on the left wing of the Democratic Party, uh, left wing, you know, not only the Democratic Party, but the country, I guess this is kind of where right meets left. This is where Pappy Cannon's um, Mercedes rides right into Ralph Nader, Ralph Nader's bicycle and they kind of go kaboom. Um, he was able to also galvanize, you know, people who liked the fact that he was for the legalization of marijuana, which at the time, very few candidates in the mainstream were. Very similar to Tulsi Gabbard, her non-interventionist foreign policy can appeal, appeal to a lot of those Ron Paul supporters. On the other side, though, on domestic issues, you know, if she supported, for example, single-payer health care, which is something that can, that, can be, that can bring support to a lot, from a lot of the Bernie Sanders supporters as well. Right. So she was really an interesting candidate. And also the fact that when she was originally seen as part of the Democratic establishment, as you say, you know, she was vice chair of the DNC. She ended up resigning um, under the tutelage of, um, of, under, the, under the tutelage of the, kind of, of, the Democrat, of the Democratic Party at the time. And she landed up supporting Bernie Sanders. Um, Debbie Watchman Schultz, congressman from Florida, um, was the chairman. So she left, she, left, she left the establishment of the party. Had she stayed in the establishment of the party, you know, she's somebody that potentially could have, you know, again, being in the good graces of Nancy Pelosi, Stanley Hoyer, she could have been a successor to Nancy Pelosi um, to something of that effect. But she instead, you know, she, she used her conscience and she's somebody who kind of became kind of somebody on kind of the outskirts of both political parties. But it's fascinating in terms of who she attracts to her candidacy, just like it was fascinating on who Ron Paul, you know, was able to attract in the candidacy. They're just people totally. who are just kind of on the outskirts of the establishment don't like the way establishment politics is being played oh, contemporaneously. Absolutely. And aren't as tribal and partisan. I mean, we had so many yes. people who just hate party labels. And I personally do. I, I hate the political parties. Um, I wish we didn't have them. Uh, you know, I'm very much with Jesse Ventura. We should abolish the parties and make all of them wear NASCAR jackets with all their corporate sponsors on them. I love that. So, Although he yeah. was going to run as a Green Party nominee, though, until... He was, uh, yeah, I think it's going to be Howie Hawkins. Um, basically, Ventura can't quit RT because of his health, health insurance. Health right. insurance, and he has someone, it's either him or his wife or someone in his family is needing uh, might need an operation or something they need the insurance and he can't quit so isn't that something that a guy working for the russians can't quit his job <laughs> to run for president of the united states in the fourth largest political party in america well you know he was when he was so when he was governor of minnesota it's interesting because part of what he ran on and this is kind of where right meets left too part of what he ran on is that he would give back the surplus remember there was a time when actually the states had surpluses yeah they would give the surplus back to the taxpayers the jesse checks the Jesse checks. They gave about three hundred dollars to every member of Minnesota, to every to everyone in Minnesota. And the first two years in office, Jesse Ventura had job approval rating at like seventy percent. Oh yeah. To the point that Al Gore and John McCain, I'm um, Al Gore rather, Al Gore and John McCain both met with him to try to get his support in that presidential campaign. He was very important. What happened was, eventually in two thousand one, nine eleven, and as a result of nine eleven, with the economy crashing and everything to the extent to that extent, most governors, most elected officials, um, their support kind of cratered. So a lot of people in Minnesota kind of blamed Jesse Ventura, and then he had proposed some tax increases. But by you know, could he have won re-election in 2002? I don't know. My guess is he probably could have because his job approval rating was about 40 percent. All he would need to win, remember, in a, with a candidate with a major 30, with a major three major candidates, um, as a member of the Minnesota Independence Party, would probably be about 34 or 35 percent, I think. And if he won and he was actually a two-term governor, then I think he would have been very formidable. I think both parties would have tried to gravitate toward him. It's interesting, though, when Paul Wellstone died, remember, this was in 2002, yeah. he died in a plane crash. Paul Wellstone, a very liberal member of the United oh, States yeah. Senate, Jesse Ventura had the power to, 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 to supplant, to appoint his successor. Dean Barkley. 
Dean Barkley, yes, yes, great great, yes. He could have appointed a Democrat, he could have appointed a Republican, but at the time the Senate, remember this was after Jim Jeffords had become a had become, left the Republican Party and become a Democrat, the Senate was deadlocked. He could have really, he had, had, had a lot of control. He, he had some he sway. Democrat or Republican, and then I remember talking to Dean Barkley one time, and he said that when he got to the Senate, he said as soon as he got there, Tom Daschle was there, Trent Lott was there, they're trying to open, welcome with open arms, like, you know, like he was, you know. We need you. Yeah, absolutely. He became, he just couldn't believe how kind of omnipotent he kind of, you know, he became like he's the Archbishop of Canterbury or something. But it just showed that, um, you know, Jesse Ventura, I guess, you know, he could have picked a Democrat, he could have picked Republican, but he's never actually really been a Democrat and he's never no. been a Republican. His administration, in many respects, was kind of tripartisan in yeah. Minnesota. But I've always wondered what would happen if he did actually run for president in, two, in, two, in 2008 or if he actually, he always kind of flirted with the idea. Oh, never really happened. I don't know what, I don't know what would have happened if his intensive, um, if kind of his style, you know, they don't agree ideologically, but very similar to Trump in terms of just being mm. agitated into the system. Well, just a wrestler. That would have done. I mean, when he, when he won, uh, Trump flew out to Minnesota to see how he did it because he was, Trump was flirting with the reform party in 2000 to run for president. And Roger yes. Stone was leading that effort. And, uh, you know, Jesse's like, Trump flew out and met with me. He wanted to see how I did it. And uh, <laughs> Trump took, took the wrestling persona, the smack talking, um, just being a straight talker, setting everyone on fire, uh, no bullshit, kind of take no prisoners approach. And, and it worked for him. Well, it would have been fascinating. I always wonder what would happen if Trump had actually run in 1999, run in 2000. You listen to him in, when he's interviewed. So he's considering, remember, this was the party started by Ross Perot. Perot ran yeah. in 92 as an independent. Got an 18.9%, ran again in the, as the Reform Party nominee in 1996, lost by two. It actually, it was interesting because that year it was supposed, the party was supposed to essentially go to somebody else. So Dick Lamb, the governor, former governor of Colorado, ran. And then all of a sudden, it looked like he was going to win. Pro got back in the race and uh, and landed up winning the nomination. But if Dick Lamb had actually won, I think the party probably would have probably would have actually still been in existence today because it would have been an actual alternative. But but anyway, by 2000, you had Pat Buchanan considering running at the time. You know, um, Donald Trump called Pat Buchanan a Hitler lover. Yeah. He talked about his immigration policy, how um, how he was going to have a more fair immigration policy, how he supported abort, how he supported abortion rights. He was the exact opposite of what he is today. Yeah. And so he was seriously thinking of running, and he was basically going to run as kind of almost a somewhat of a center-left type of a Democrat. It's ama- I find it amazing that who would have thought that in 2020, the same person who was giving money to Chuck Schumer, to Nancy <laughs> Pelosi, the, to this person who said that Hillary Clinton was a great senator, who said that Bill Clinton was one of his favorite presidents, that this person would be revered in places like Oklahoma and West Virginia, and Mississippi, and Alabama, I sound like Howard Dean now, you know, yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> um, and Louisiana, amongst people who are very conservative, that he's actually was able to kind of, you know, change his image the way he did, to the point where people actually view people who are in the Republican Party, who do not steer the Trump line, are now called Republicans in name only. Donald Trump would have been a Republican in name only, you know, six or seven years ago. I've never seen a transformation of a political party since William Jennings Bryant in 1896. So at the time, the Democratic Party was a very conservative party. In 1893, there was a panic. There was a Great Depression, 25% unemployment. Grover Cleveland becomes very unpopular. He wouldn't do anything for the economy. He said that essentially the private sector, or he did very little. He said this is the private sector. So in 1896, Cleveland doesn't run for re-election, extremely unpopular. William Jennings Bryan, a former two-term congressman of Nebraska, 
would literally just run for a Senate seat. The state legislature, of course, went Republicans. We didn't win it. Then he runs for president. 1896 gets across a gold speech about how, you know, how he was against being on the gold standard. He talked about more government services. He wins the nomination and he was kind of the first liberal Democrat to win, but he really changed the face of the Democratic Party. Now you have a Republican Party that's no longer economic, that's no longer free traders like George W. Bush, like, you know, Ronald Reagan, like George H.W. Bush, like Gerald Ford, like Richard Nixon, like most Republicans since, uh, at least since, at least since Herbert Hoover were. It's really gone. It, what Trump did is he brought the Republican Party back to where they were under Coolidge and Hoover and Harding um, on domestic policy. Certainly, it, certainly, it's, it's certainly there's less government, although it's somewhat selective. But then on foreign policy, at least in rhetoric, it's about being a non-interventionist. But it's really a latter-day Warren G. Harding, I think, in terms of ideology. Yeah, well, you had Trump up there at the Al Smith dinner with, with uh, Crooked Hillary on the dais. And he's like, Chuck Schumer, Chuck, you used to love me when I gave you money when I was a Democrat. They used to love me then. You don't love me <laughs> so much. You, of course, you used to have me at your house and I cut you checks and you all loved me when I was a Democrat. And then he's like... <laughs> He's like, Hillary says it takes a village, and she should know she's taken many in Haiti. <laughs> oh. Yeah, he said that. You, you, you watched the Al Smith dinner, right? The last yes, one? Yes, I did. That yes, was, I did. That, Trump is a, he is a late night host, stand-up comedian. He's the funniest, he's the funniest president we've ever had. And I don't know if that's a sad statement or I don't know what to say about that, but even well, if he did, Harrison was probably pretty funny, but he died and he died a month into, in his, into his term. So I don't know if we could ever figure yeah, it out how he funny never, he actually was. Never got to see him let it rip at the correspondence dinner. And I'm, <laughs> I'm disappointed in Trump for not sacking up and doing the correspondence dinner. He should, he should have at least done one of those. If he gets reelected, he needs to do it. Um, and you know, of course the, most of the people in the entertainment world lean left and are, connected to the Democratic Party, but he could, you know, get some of his MAGA-friendly performers, or he could get Diamond and Silk up there, or Terrence Williams, or one of those, one of those, you know, people who are, Ted who are oh, Jesus, Ted Nugent. <laughs> yeah, Ted would be up there with an AR and a crossbow and camo, you know. Culture but, uh, shock, culture shock, culture yeah. shock. But, um, yeah, well, we're winding down here, Rich. Uh, if you can just tell everybody where they can find your stuff, and uh, I'll just give you the last word, man. Thank you so much. Yep. Yeah, well, I um so I appear uh, I appear weekly on uh, the Straight Dope with uh with the the Straight Dope on the bull, on the Bulldog and the Rude Awakening Morning Show on Ocean City, Maryland, and ninety eight point one in Ocean City, Maryland. And then Monday night I appear with Ryan Recker in St. Louis on KMOX. I also do a Backroom Politics, which is on hiatus during the COVID crisis, but that certainly will come back. But certainly, if you go to my Facebook page, Rich Rubino R U B I N O, you can see where I put up all my appearances, and also you can go to www polita-geek.com you can see where my books are and i put up all my radio appearances on that as well yeah awesome well this has been great rich it's uh, good to connect with you and i definitely will want to have you back on again and uh you know if you're hosting any radio shows and you need donald trump to call in or jesse ventura yes you know, yes um, you do it yes yes I'm, I'm available by all means it just can't be with a democrypt or a bloodlican i don't like the gains rich <laughs> but um yeah it's i'll recommend great. you to some people absolutely yeah, yeah. See if they want a funny uh, political comedian. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Keep up the great work, man. And you know, I follow your stuff. And uh, it's wild times. It's a great time to be into politics and uh, paying attention to everything that's going on. So, But at least it's civil. Yeah. At least everything's civil right now. This is going to be the most civil election Which, since 1904. I, I am going to have the most beautiful civil war. You're not even going to – it's going to make Stonewall Jackson's head spin, quite frankly, okay? <laughs> Stonewall thought he had a good wall. Wait till you see Trump wall Jackson, okay? Unbelievable. Well, you know who his favorite president is? Uh, Trump's he, favorite? Yeah. Who's that? Jefferson Davis. 
<laughs> Good one. <laughs> I am Jefferson Davis's heir apparent. I'm the successor. <laughs> Second presidency of the Confederacy. Unbelievable. Doing such a good job. Yeah, it's crazy out there, man. Well, we need we need more uh, civil political discourse and people just kind of need to calm down and remove their emotion from it. And, uh, you know, that's why it's great to talk to people like you. You have a good grasp on things and um, we need more of that. And leave the name calling, take it out of politics and put it into personal relations instead. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, very good. Well, thanks a lot, Rich and folks. Uh, check out his stuff and uh, thank you for tuning in. Hit that subscribe button, share and like this video. And if you want to support Jackman Radio, go to patreon.com slash Jackman Radio. Uh, thank you for joining us. You all be good to one another and take care. <laughs>